Let us pray. Merciful God, as we remember how your son Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross, now seven times he spoke seven words of love. We ask you to bless our hearing. Fathers, we recall how all three hours his silence cried for mercy on the souls of all. We ask you to help us to understand the mystery of your love and make us into a people who are ever more worthy of it. Amen. We begin our way of the cross this evening with the first word. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. But I wonder, did they really not know what they were doing? I mean, Judas betrayed his Lord and Master, his friend. Pilate knew he had condemned an innocent man to death. The Jewish council knew they had secured a false verdict by bribing witnesses. They were not innocent, ignorant of the facts of their crimes, but they were ignorant of its enormity. They did not realize that they were not just crucifying an ordinary man, they were crucifying the Son of God. So Jesus asked God to forgive them. But is the forgiveness only for those who played a direct role in the crucifixion of Jesus? Or is this forgiveness also for each of us who do know what we're doing when we try to make a name for ourselves or put selfish interests first and ignore the needs of other people? You know, forgiveness is needed even more when we do know what we're doing. Forgiveness does not mean an absence of judgment or justice. I mean, Jesus never suggested they were right to do what they were doing. He didn't forgive and call the wrong right. Instead, he forgave the wrong in order to make things right with the evildoer. He forgave so that the world would not be condemned, but saved through him. Father, Forgive us when we don't know what we're doing, and please be even more merciful when we do. The second word on the cross. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. As a young boy growing up and hearing these stories for the very first time, I wondered why this one thief deserves such a generous reward. I mean, obviously, he was a hardened criminal who obviously had not lived a very good life. He had not lived what Christians might call a righteous life. And there's no telling what sort of atrocities he had committed against other people. For his entire life, he looked down upon others as people that he could prey upon, Everyone else was just a potential victim for whatever illegal pursuit he chose to bring upon them. But you know something? It's kind of hard to pick somebody's pocket, isn't it, when your hands are nailed to a cross? In his last breath, this thief learned a simple but profound truth. Paradise is not achievable. It's only receivable. Maybe some of you read the words of uh, Mayor of one of our large cities. 
He said something this last week, and he said, if there is a God, I will surely get to heaven without answering any questions. I'll get in because I've been a great person and I have earned it. And I thought, how sad. The only thing that we truly earn is what? Death. The wages of sin are death. Even Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace are we saved through faith. See, no matter how hard we work to earn it, legally or illegally, we'll never reach the paradise that we seek. We can only get there through the invitation of Jesus. I'll say it again. Paradise is not achievable. It is only receivable. This thief on the cross who turned to Jesus is rewarded for his ability to see what few other people see. I mean, he is convinced that Jesus is a king because he asks to be remembered by Jesus when he enters or comes into his kingdom. When you and I look at the cross, do we merely see a bloody victim or do we actually see a king whose arms are spread out to welcome us into his kingdom? Almighty God, help us see that the paradise we seek can only be found in the open arms of your Son. The third word. Dear woman, here is your son, and here is your mother. If there were ever a moment we would expect a man to think only of himself, it is at the hour of his death. Yet even then, as Jesus hung on the cross, he's more concerned about others than himself. The vision of Mary reminds us, reminds him of what we often forget. I mean, we know Mary as a saint, but we often forget that she's also a mother. She's somebody who took care of scraped knees and colicky babies perhaps waiting for her son occasionally to come home late at night, and now she knows the worst pain of all, that of watching her son die. Are we surprised that Jesus looks out for his mother? You know, as the eldest son in the house, it was his job to provide for her. And even as he approached death, he was still faithful to that calling. He saw to it that his mother had a home to which she could go, even as he prepared to go to his own home. There's another person in this story, though, isn't there? His name is John, the disciple, as it said, that Jesus loved. And as the other person in this story, John learns that when you come to the cross, you had better be prepared for a new responsibility. I don't know if he knew that that night when he got there, that he was going to take on a new responsibility. But Jesus does not beckon us to the cross merely to watch him die. He beckons us to come to the, to the cross where he gives us our calling. And as I've discovered in my own life, the closer you stand to the cross, and the more often you approach the cross, the better able you are to hear the call of God on your life. So we come to the cross to die to our own plans. We come to the cross to die to our own ambitions. And we come to the cross to accept the yoke given by the one who hung there in our place. Holy God, 
May we be as mothers and sons to each other, living out Jesus' call from the cross to take care of each other as a family bonded together by love. The fourth word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a gut-wrenching cry. As a young boy growing up at St. John's Lutheran Church in Seward, Nebraska, when I approached fourth or fifth grade, my grandparents allowed me to sit in the balcony. It was with the promise of good behavior. We had kind of a horseshoe-shaped balcony in old St. John's Church, but I took a place where I could watch people in the congregation, but more importantly, I took a place where I could watch the pastors, and I studied them. I remember a good Friday when I was 10 or 11 years old because it thundered all the way to church. And during that good Friday service with thunder and then lightning, it just seemed to me oh so real. And then Pastor Spitz got up in the pulpit and he shouted out, Eli, Eli, and it scared a young boy half to death. Because he shouted out the words in another language, the language that Jesus would have spoken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I wonder why these words in two different languages were included in the Gospels. Why would we want to know that Jesus felt forsaken by his own father at this moment? And did God really turn his back on his son at this time? See, when Jesus went to the cross, he took all of our sins with him. That doesn't mean that it was just your sins or my sins. It was the sins of all humanity. It was not just sins, but it says that he became sin itself. Jesus, the Christ, had to feel the full effects of all of the sins, past, present, and future, the effects of God's judgment on him for those sins. I mean, his soul had to share in the punishment of our sins. And at that moment in time, on that cross, Jesus became guilty of some of the worst things you and I could ever do. He carried on himself murder. And molestation and greed and selfishness. And I sometimes wonder if we really understand what Jesus is doing here. See, because God is a just God, he could either inflict punishment on us for our sins, or he could assume it on himself. And so Jesus endures infinite suffering in these three hours for us. The Father turns away from His very own Son, Jesus, so that He never ever has to turn and look away from us. I'm not sure that we can ever fully understand what happened between God and Jesus in these hours. We can only accept this level of pain and suffering and just understand that it was all done for us. See, in the midst of this devastating time, I hope you didn't miss the words. He said, My God, my God, it was a cry of distress, but it was not a cry of distrust. Merciful God, thank you for conquering death. 
Help us to cry out, my God, even when we feel forsaken. Remind us that you never leave our side, even in the darkest of times. The fifth word, I am thirsty. You know, part of the power of what Jesus is doing on the cross for us is that he was doing it as a full, full human being. This is not a God who's somehow going through some form of divine charade to make us think that he's suffering. This is Jesus of Nazareth, a flesh and blood human being, beaten and bloody and nailed to a cross. And his thirst is just another sign of his physical anguish. He is suffering. But his thirst is for far more than just water. Jesus often spoke of water in his Gospels. In John's Gospel, when he dealt with that woman at the well in Samaria, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus promised us the living waters of baptism to quench the thirst of our souls for meaning and purpose. What a strange irony that the very person who suggested he is the source of living water is now famished in body and soul. And if you stop and think about it, when they pierced his side, what came out? Blood and water. See, Jesus' cry is the cry of everyone who's thirsty, not just for water, but people who also cry out for justice and for a place at God's table. Jesus drank the cup of death, which doesn't quench thirst. It only heightens it. He did this so that everyone might drink from the cup of life, which we do every time we take communion. Through his death, the thirst of our souls is forever quenched. Giving God, who poured out his blood so that we might never be thirsty, help us to see the needs of others and meet them as Christ has done for us. The sixth word, it is finished. Indeed, it is finished. One of the most powerful words in the Greek of the New Testament are these words. The word is tetelestai. It's an accounting term. It means paid in full. See, Pilate thought with this death of Jesus, this so-called king's reign would be over and the rebellion would be quenched. He thought it's finished. If he would have spoken Greek that day, Pilate, when he washed his hands, would have said tetelestai. It is finished. The disciples thought that Rome had finally won and finally silenced Jesus. After all, a dead Messiah is no Messiah at all. And again, had the disciples spoken in Greek, they would have said, Tetelestai. It's finished. But Jesus knew what really was finished. I mean, Scripture has been fulfilled. Sin and death had been defeated. Redemption had been completed. 
Humanity was reconciled back to God once and for all time. His work, which he was sent to do, had been completed. It was finished. You remember when Joseph and Mary found Jesus back in the temple when they lost him at age 12? And they asked him, what are you doing here? And Jesus replied, I must be about my father's business. And year after year after year, he worked at completing his father's business until finally with his arms stretched out on the cross, he had finished the mission for which he was sent. Patelestai. It is finished. None of us likes to think about dying, that's for sure. As much as we'd like to say, well, if we die, that's okay because we get to be with Jesus, I'm not sure that down deep any of us really looks forward to it. But you know, friends, when we face our own death, will we be able to look at what God has called us to do here on earth and utter the same words? Like Paul said, you know, I've run the race. See, our lives are just a work in progress. That's why I don't like the word retired. When people tried to tell me, oh, you retired, I said, no, I retired from being the pastor of the church. But no one involved in God's word work ever retires. You merely reposition yourself for a new calling. Little did I know it would lead me to mineral wells. But see, our lives are lives in progress. And I pray for each and every one of you that God would grant you the grace and the courage to finish out that journey that he has called you to. God of all life, use your power and majesty to bring to completion the work you have called us to do, just as you follow Jesus to the cross and beyond. The seventh word. Father, into your hands I command my spirit. The first recorded words of Jesus were when he was found in the temple, as I said before, and he says to his parents, don't you know that I had to be about my father's business? And now that that business is finished, to tell us thy, it is finished, he can also say, Father, because it's all done, into your hands, I commend my spirit. These are the last words of Jesus on the cross. There are no curses that are coming from his mouth. There's no loathing contempt for the Jews or the Romans. There's no bitter resignation. Instead, he ends his life with a prayer of faith. The same prayer that Jewish mothers would have taught their children to say at bedtime, Every night, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. You know, when you stop and think about it, it is a fitting end to an extraordinary life. Jesus was betrayed into the hands of sinners, but he was always in control of his life. And it is only at this moment when everything is accomplished that he chooses to give his life back to his father. That allows God to restore Jesus' spirit in the days to come. 
To whom does your life belong? Isn't it strange that we have so many people in our world today who say, this is my body, I can do with it whatever I want. And God says, no, I was there from the time you were created in your mother's womb, and you are mine until the day I choose to call you home. So who really do you belong to? See, we don't have to wait until our dying breath to commend our spirits to God. We can do it tonight. We can do it right now. Do it this very day in the shadow of the cross just to give our life to God for his use. Let's just say that all together. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. See, God wants to restore us as well. The question is whether or not we would choose to put our life in God's hands. Loving God, thank you for opening our arms to receive us. We commend ourselves to you this day as we accept the gift of life given by your Son, Jesus. We join together in singing. <clears throat>